Well, three weeks ago, guest speaker Tim Ayers shared a story where Jesus miraculously calmed a violent storm. Now, his disciples were with him and they were terrified by the storm. Thanks, Rob. But they were even more terrified by the fact that Jesus was able to calm the storm with a single word. And in that moment, they looked at one another and they said, who is this man? And it's a question that people all around Jesus were asking. His disciples were asking it. The religious leaders called the Pharisees were asking it. And there were crowds of people milling around Jesus that were asking this question. And this first question, who is Jesus, leads to a second important question that we're going to look at over the next three weeks, which is what did he come to do? Now, to help us look at the answers to these questions, uh, we're going to look at the Gospels. And in the Gospels, we get different pictures of who Jesus, Jesus was. We see teacher Jesus, uh, the, the perspective that probably most people are comfortable with. Jesus as one who taught uh, moral truths and taught us how to live. Uh, but we also, over the last three weeks, saw healer Jesus. We saw him heal individuals miraculously. And this kind of stretches people a little bit more. And then we begin to see this picture of leader Jesus as he's beginning to gather people around him and as he's headed somewhere. And then we see reformer Jesus as he begins to recognize that there are things that are out of whack in the world. And he steps in and he begins to turn some things upside down, literally at moments overturning tables in the Jewish temple. This is probably an image that, at least for me, I'm a little less comfortable with. And then there's celebrity Jesus. There's crowds everywhere following him, trying to figure out who he is. And this was a, a picture that Jesus himself was not comfortable with. And then the last and the most provocative is the divine Jesus. These are all pictures of who Jesus was that we get in the scriptures. And these all speak to who he is. And they help us begin to answer the question, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Now, as I've mentioned, the best place to answer and and answer these questions is to look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, and John. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the Gospel of John chapter 10. And if you'll turn in your Bibles, if you grab them, we're in uh, page 891. If you're using one of our Bibles, I want to say again, welcome to those of you who are online. We're glad that you could join us. Now, as you're turning there, just a little bit of background on John's gospel. John had a unique perspective, and it was unique in two ways. First of all, Jesus or John was one of Jesus' closest friend. In fact, he describes himself as, as Jesus' best friend. The, this, uh, he was the disciple that Jesus loved. But he had a very different perspective of Jesus, too. This was after Jesus had returned to father, the Father. And he has this incredible revelation where he sees Jesus. He sees the divine Jesus. And so he has these two really different perspectives of who Jesus is. And he brings those perspectives to his gospel. And another thing that's unique about that perspective is that John was the last one to write his stories down. And so he was familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John has a much more intimate picture of Jesus. And he fills in some personal stories that none of the other gospel writers capture. And so today we're going to get a glimpse of who John saw Jesus to be, and it's in John chapter 10. And we're actually, the context for this story is in chapter 9, 
and we're going to look to see who Jesus says that he is. Starts in chapter 9, as Jesus heals, there's another story of healing, and we won't look at all the parts of this he- of the healing, but what is unique about this story is that Jesus begins to interact with the man, and he begins to share with them who he is. And so just a brief summary of this story. Uh, Jesus is walking along with his disciples. He sees this is this man that's born blind. Uh, Jesus spits on the ground and he makes a little bit of mud. And that's a reminder of something that uh, Tim Ayers shared a couple of weeks ago about there was this belief that a holy man could actually heal from his bodily fluids. And I thought of that as, as Jesus spits to make mud. He puts it on the, over the man's eyes and then he tells the man to go um, rinse in a specific pool in there in Jerusalem. The man did it and he was healed. And it's a fascinating story of healing, but it also generates a lot of controversy. Uh, the man has a conversation with, uh, with the Pharisees, the, the Jewish religious leaders, and we'll take a look at, at what that conversation looked like in a moment. Uh, but as we see, this encounter, this man's encounter with Jesus is just the beginning as Jesus began to share who he is and what he came to do. And he shares it with this man. And we see it in the, just the end of chapter 9 and verse 35. When Jesus heard what had happened, he heard about this interaction with the man and the Pharisees. He found the man and he asked him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, this sounds a little bit like a strange question to us. It's, it's actually a cryptic title that Jesus is using to refer to himself. And you'll kind of see this popping up over 80 places in the Gospels. And it's a messianic title. And there's a lot packed into this, this passage. And we don't fully understand it, but they would have understand it. In fact, just to give you a glimpse of uh, this title and what it might mean in Daniel chapter 7. He was one of the Old Testament prophets. We read this, and this is a vision that Daniel had. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, he's talking about God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus is describing a title of authority and he's saying to this man, as we'll see in a moment, I'm that guy. It's a pretty extraordinary claim of authority. Now the man answered Jesus, he said, who is he, sir? I wanna believe in him because you have to remember when Jesus healed the man, he wiped mud on his eyes, the man was still blind, the man went away. And Jesus answers, he said, you have seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. He says, yes, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. Clearly, the man understood what Jesus was saying to him. He immediately adopts a posture of worship as he falls down uh, before Jesus. It's clear that the man is beginning to understand that Jesus is more than just a physical healer. And so Jesus goes on to explain to the man, and he said, then Jesus told him, I've entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Jesus came to bring spiritual insight, not just heal physical eyesight. And some of the Pharisees happened to be hanging around, and they were watching, and they were listening to this interaction. 
And they ask, they ask Jesus, they said, are you saying we're blind? And Jesus responds, he says, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but you remain guilty because you claim to see. Now let's take a moment and talk about who these Pharisees were. Uh, they were the, uh, a group of Jewish religious leaders. And they, I think, had started off well. They started off with the desire to keep God's laws. Um, God had given the Jewish people a number of commandments, ways to, to live uh, and justly uh, before God and with one another. And through time, they had interpreted these laws and they had built fences. They were worried that they were going to violate the laws. And so they built a number of fences. They added rules to interpret the laws and to make sure they never got close to breaking the law. And so by Jesus' day, they had had so many rules and regulations that they'd actually begun to value the rules and regulations, uh, in some cases, even more the laws than these rules were intended to protect. So for example, uh, the Jews were commanded to observe the Sabbath, the day of rest. And they had come up with a list of 39 specific things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath that would constitute labor. And so instead of rejoicing when Jesus heals this man, they enter into a debate about whether it was lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath. They were much more concerned about the rules and they were offended that Jesus wasn't following them. In fact, I think they'd gotten to the point that they believed that keeping the religious rules was the way to obtain salvation. And I think in some ways, it's the equivalent of people who might say today, hey, I'm a good person, I generally do the right things, and I believe that God will accept me. But Jesus turns their world upside down. He disagrees with them. In fact, he reserves his harshest, harshest judgment for the disciples and his critique for them. In fact, through the passage that we're going to read, he repeatedly calls them thieves and robbers because they're more concerned about keeping the rules and enriching themselves than they are caring and protecting the people that God has entrusted them with. But Jesus shares a better way with the man, the true way to life with God. And it's not through keeping the rules. It's through a relationship. So down in John chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus shares this with the man. But the one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Jesus uses a metaphor here that they would have understand in their agricultural world. They, they knew there were sheep everywhere, and he's likely talking about a large enclosure that maybe would have been between multiple homes where they would have kept sheep. Uh, multiple families would have kept sheep. And Jesus is describing himself as a shepherd, and he talks about uh, his people as sheep. And it reminded me of Brad's message last weekend when he said, Jesus healed this little girl, and the words he used sounded a lot like in Aramaic, the language they spoke, like little lamb, get up. Jesus is saying that he is a shepherd. And then he goes on to say that the sheep will recognize his voice, and he says it multiple ways. He repeats this over and over and someone's voice is something that you begin to recognize through relationship, through friendship, as you hear it and as you spend time together. And Jesus is saying that we can begin to get to know his voice. But hearing his voice takes time, it takes concentration, it takes setting apart time to listen. 
Sometimes that voice is a whisper, and in a noisy world, it's easy for that voice to get drowned out. But Jesus describes this as a two-way relationship. He says, they not only know me, but I know them. This is not a group of nameless sheep. He says, I know my sheep by name. And again, the last three weeks, we saw these incredible story, uh, these incredible stories of how Jesus interacted with each individual. He knew exactly what they needed, and he took care and gave them what they needed. There's a level of intimacy, a sense of knowing, and Jesus goes on to describe this later in this passage, this sense of intimacy that he can have with us is the same intimacy that he has with God the Father. So I'm curious, do you believe that Jesus knows your name? Do you believe that you can have that kind of intimate relationship with him? Well, most people, um, pastor and author A.W. Tozer, uh, he, he says he doesn't think that most people believe that that's true. Here's what he says in his book, The Pursuit of God. They may have a vague acquaintance with God, but for most people, he's an inference, not a reality. He's a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. They do not know God in personal experience, The possibility of intimate acquaintance with him has not entered their minds. While admitting his existence, they do not think of him as knowable in the sense that we know things or people. And I want to give credit to Julie Miners for this. Julie was, uh, does some teaching uh, with our women's groups, and she was teaching this week, uh, and she was teaching a whole section on knowing God. And this was a quote that she used, and when my wife Susie came home, she shared this with me. I thought that's a fabulous quote that I need to share. And Jesus is saying this is the kind of intimate relationship that's possible with God. You can know me. And this made me think about a story I'm flashing back to my freshman year in college. Uh, I was in a class and there was a girl there and uh, I noticed her and she was beautiful. And then I began to realize she was really smart. I heard her speak in front of the class because we had to share and debate. And I knew she was smart and engaging. I had friends that knew her um, and they told me how amazing she was. And literally for four years, I never talked to this girl once. I knew about her, but I didn't know her. And then four years later, we ended up getting jobs at the same place. We ended up providentially ending up in apartment complexes right next to each other, and we started to carpool to work. And you probably figured out this is Susie, my wife, and I have gotten to know her really well. But there was a significant (laughs) difference between knowing about her and knowing her as my friend and as my wife. So Jesus continues to talk about uh, this relationship that he wants to have with us when he says this. He tells the man, after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger, they'll run from him because they don't know his voice. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm going to walk ahead of you. I'm taking you someplace. I'm leading you somewhere. You're not just hearing my voice, but I'm taking you someplace to follow. And in a moment, we'll see where he's taking them. But the way that they herded sheep in the Middle East is different than, you know, if we watch a Western here, we see cowboys and they've got a dog or they're with their horses and they're pushing the sheep. 
But that's not the way they heard. They would lead the sheep with their voice. They would train the sheep to follow. And that's what Jesus does with us. And he continues in verse 9 when he says, yes, I'm the gate. Sometimes the shepherd would, would lay the, down in the gate. And he says, those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and they will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal, steal to kill and destroy. And my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, this phrase, rich and satisfying, I don't think fully captures the word that was in the original Greek language. It can be translated a lot of different ways. It can mean over and above. It can mean more than enough or overflowing or abundant or superabundant or flourishing. These are all ways to describe the kind of life that Jesus is saying that he is trying to lead us into. And he's offering us this life through relationship with him. But the reality is that most of the people that were hearing Jesus' words were not experiencing this kind of life right then. The man who was born blind definitely wasn't experiencing. He was likely begging on the side of the road when Jesus and his disciples walked by. Most of his hearers, probably 80 to 90 percent, kind of lived a subsistence lifestyle, uh, effectively living in poverty and various levels. And you have to remember that they were a conquered people, so they probably weren't feeling like they were living in an abundant life. And moreover, the religious leaders taught them that their sin and their brokenness and even their poverty was a lack of God's blessing. And so hearing Jesus' words would have sounded different and fresh Jesus is saying, God is for you. God loves you. God blesses you, even in spite of what you're experiencing right in the moment. And Jesus is offering them a way to transform their situation and the way that they live and the way that they are with one another. But it doesn't deny the hardship or the brokenness, but he's offering them a way of life that leads through, through that and experience true life. And this word isn't used in the passage, but I think his hearers would have thought of this idea of shalom. And it was a Jewish concept that speaks to wholeness and health and security and well-being and peace and rest and freedom from conflict. And shalom was considered a blessing from God. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering to them. Sometimes that blessing comes even in the midst of hardship. You know, as I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking about something that Wendy Herberg, our pastor of adult discipleship, uh, has shared with us on a couple of occasions. Her first career, she was an oncology nurse, and so she got to spend a lot of time watching people that were in places of difficulty and suffering, and in many cases, people who were dying. And she saw a significant contrast between families who were facing death with hope and families who are facing death without hope. And it was the contrast between the two that was the catalyst for her to say, I wanna go back to school, I wanna go to seminary, and I wanna engage in a life of ministry in the local church. We can experience life even in the midst of circumstances that are difficult and even in the midst of hardship. And Jesus wants us to experience life. He wants to lead us to someplace better. 
So Jesus continues to share with them down in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Friends, sometimes we need to hear these things over and over and over for them to move from here to here. And they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. He's referring to those like us that are going to come to know him that weren't part of uh, this Jewish uh, family of believers. And he said, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Jesus knew that there were going to be barriers for us experiencing that kind of life, but he's the good shepherd and he'll do anything to protect and care for his sheep. And he's willing to lay down his life to break through the most significant barrier for us experiencing that kind of life. He's the shepherd who became the sacrificial lamb that would restore our relationship with God. Jesus continues to share with the man, the father loves me because I sacrificed my life so that I can take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for that I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father commanded. Jesus makes clear that his death and resurrection weren't an accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an oops. It was a deliberate act of Jesus as God's son laying down his life for us because he's the good shepherd and because he cares for us and he wants to invite us into life with him with eternity. And this whole passage reminds us that Jesus understood something the Pharisees didn't. They believed with their religious practices and their rules and trying to do the right thing that they would find life. But Jesus came to replace the religious rules and bring us life, the relationship with him. So what do we do with this? What do we do with John chapter 10? There's a lot I think that we can do with this. Maybe you're in a place where you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. If you're someone who has questions or you're still trying to figure out, uh, you know, I think Jesus is this or I think Jesus is that, and I'm, but I'm not really sure, that's okay. That's a good place to be, to be wrestling with who he is. would encourage you to read the Gospels, and if you've got questions, feel free to talk to somebody here at the church. We'd love to sit down and have a conversation and explore your questions with you. Maybe you're somebody who's beginning to, to hear his voice, but man, it's a little hard and it takes practice and it takes time. It takes space to sit down and begin to listen. Well, Julie Miners, who I mentioned taught in women's group, put together a, a simple little tool of ways that you can practice. And they're out there on the info center. And if you're online, just shoot me an email and we'll get you a copy of that. But there's some simple exercises that you can do be, to begin to hear God's voice and to practice hearing God's voice. Or maybe you're somebody who is heard God's voice, but you're just in a season where it's hard to hear again, or maybe life is just hard and you're struggling. If you need support, find somebody in this congregation, find somebody in your small group. Again, reach out to us on staff if you're not sure how to reach out to. Again, we'd love to sit down and talk with you 
Don't do this journey alone because Jesus wants you to move through whatever difficulty you're facing and experience the life that he's offering to us. We want Grace Fishers to be the kind of place where people can experience life. If you go to our website or when you walk in the front doors, you may see that sign that says for you and for families and for fishers. The for you is there because a lot of times I think people aren't convinced that the church is for them. And we want Grace Fishers to be the kind of place where people can encounter Jesus and where people can find a place to grow and people can be honest when life isn't working and that, pe- uh, that Grace Fishers can be a place where people can find hope. And friends, that's not going to happen just through the staff helping us be that kind of place. That's going to take all of us reaching out, paying attention as you see, some, see someone who needs a kind word, an arm around their shoulder, who needs a word of encouragement. Jesus wants us to find life with him. And as we'll talk about next week, he wants us to find life with one another. You know, Susie and I were doing some house cleaning recently, and we found a couple of boxes of mementos from college and shortly after college. And as I went through the box, I found some old journals, and I thought, I'm like, I'm getting rid of these things. Nobody wants to read my old journals. But I did flip through them because I was curious to see what kinds of things were I thinking and what kinds of things were I struggling with then. And what was kind of frustrating and honestly a little discouraging was I realized that I experienced the same kind of fears and temptations and anxieties then that I do today. And I kind of sat in that. I thought, am I really no different now than I was 30 years ago? And as I began to think, I thought there is one thing that's different. I may experience those same fears and temptations and anxieties that I experienced then, but I can hear his voice a little clearer, and I don't stay in that same place as long, and I'm reminded of his words of hope that he speaks to me, and that he wants me to experience life. And as I was thinking about that this week, um, I had some moments of anxiety and some moments when I was just thinking, and some different words came to me, some words that remind me that, that God is my shepherd, that Jesus is my shepherd, and, and it was almost unconscious at first. And as I thought about how to close the service today, I thought these are the perfect words, the words that often bring people comfort and they're words that may be familiar to, to you, the words from Psalm 23. And we're gonna read it, and this is how I'm gonna invite you to do this. If you're at a place where you just need to sit and receive these words, I just want you to remain seated. Just receive these words as your spiritual family reads them together. And for the rest of us, you may be in a place where you want to affirm these words. Maybe they're a little challenging for you to read, but you want to affirm them, even though maybe you don't fully feel them. I want to invite you to stand. And for those of you who, who believe these words and maybe you're in a great season where you're hearing God's voice clearly, again, I want to invite you to stand and read these words with me. So any of you that want to stand, let's stand and read these now. Let's read these words together out loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.